This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And uh, this is the episode we have been talking about for a long time now. It's a very uh, special episode. It this is a special really, episode for I'm us. I'm really anxious, excited about doing this. I, I think this is really remarkable. Um, we have, for a while now on the podcast, been talking about an unsolved homicide here in Los Angeles that has gone unsolved now for three decades. We kind of got inspired f- by Michelle McNamara, didn't we? Wasn't that mm-hmm. when this really started? The, yes. Um, the I, I'll Be Gone in, in the Dark or whatever that series yes. was called. And you and I both, in response to that, talked about cases that interested us. And yes, this and was that the is, case that you were interested in. Yes, we recorded episode 37, if, if listeners are interested in going back into the archive and finding it. We talked about we talked about the first episode of All Be Gone in the Dark, which is the HBO series about Michelle McNamara, but we talked about it in a sense of um, talking about obsession in general, and particularly those of us who have obsessions with things like true crime, things that are dark, uh, which is a a popular subject or it was a popular subject before the coronavirus pandemic. I think people, a lot of people are focused on that now, but we talked about it and and we talked about because Michelle was such an example of someone who was fixated on a single case or multiple cases in the case of the golden state killer that we both identified the cases that had always haunted us on a certain level. And you talked about, I forget the, their names now, but the kidnapping in Santa Barbara that happened many right. years ago. And mine was really more about, I was more obsessed with what became of the case rather than the case itself, because the case was ultimately solved, but then it just vanished from the media. And I found that phenomenon to be particularly intriguing. It made me... right doubt the veracity of the outcome of the case as it as it came out but you were more um were more taken with this unsolved case from um Mm -hmm. our neighborhood and our community from uh 30 years ago before even i lived here right i well you moved here shortly a few years very shortly thereafter i lived moved here in 91 and this happened in uh, this happened happen? in 1990. October 29th, 1990 will be the 30-year anniversary of William Newton's remains so, being found in a dumpster in Hollywood. Less yeah. than a year later, I moved here. So, yeah, people this, mentioned this is, it when I first got here. This is an interesting time in the history of Los Angeles. I mean, it's a terrible time for the gay community, right? Because the AIDS epidemic is really gaining It was a steam. nightmare. Um, 
the, the, a lot of the people that I talked to initially when I was sort of asking questions about this case had the reflexive response of, well, you're never going to find out anything because everyone from that time is dead. Well, that's not true. There are a lot of survivors. I'm not, you know. but there, you're a survivor. yeah, but there were a lot, but it is, if, unless you're somebody from that period and from this community, it is hard to imagine the the level, the number of deaths. By the time I was 30 years old, the amount of death I had experienced in my immediate circle and among mm-hmm. people that I knew and was friends with was almost deadening. Mm-hmm. It had become something I was accustomed to going right. to going to to lunch and saying, so how's so-and-so? And they'd say, oh, he died last month. Uh, mm-hmm. That was not an unusual occurrence. Like, mm-hmm. I lived in New York in the time period in the 80s, and almost everyone that I was friends with and hung out with from that time period is dead. Now, right. I'm a lot older then, so some of that is, you know, but really, for the most part, it was dead. They had been dead since back since this time period right since the 90s and so I, it, it was I, profound that's been part of my obsession with the william newton case because i i knowing that there was never an arrest made never any significant real announcements made in the development of the case or the investigation there was i, I can't think of a worse time to have to investigate a homicide in the urban gay community than 1990 or this this expanse of the aids epidemic but p- particularly 90 because it was still sort of towards the beginning of the worst of it you're dealing with uh, people who aside from dying of aids on a regular basis are traumatized by grief they're, they may not have the headspace to accommodate a homicide, even if they knew the guy. They're going to funerals on a regular basis. It was just, it was, a, it was, a, it was investigating a homicide in an already traumatized community, and I can't imagine that that was effective was, or it turned up a lot of leads. Beyond that, it was a, it was a marginalized community. Like mm-hmm. we were mm-hmm. still very much in the era of legislators comparing us to. Um, criminals and uh, alcoholics and I forget the you know, the famous right. Trent Lott explanation or um, people advocating for uh, amendments to the Constitution to ban us from having equal rights and and people just feeling free to say pretty much whatever say uncle mm-hmm. came out in 1994 at a time when, People were having, gay people were having their own natural children taken away from them by courts, and people still thought that was okay. So that was the environment. So, like, if somebody killed one of us, like, you don't, like, we don't sanction murder, but the level of importance that that would have had in that time period, like, we were not really, we were told we were not allowed to exist. So killing us, how could that really be a big problem when the national government says we're not even really allowed to exist as human beings? So it well, was and then, it was very much a fraught period for absolutely. The, the and government was ignoring in, the AIDS crisis. Right. Add in mistrust of the police, which is something we talked about in the previous episode. The very case much of Bruce so. MacArthur in Toronto, which is even more, far more recent than, than this murder, which was in 1990. Um, and then we have to add in the fact that William Newton was a sex worker. He had uh, performed and produced in adult, gay adult films under the name Billy London. 
I want to I put this out there, and this is one of those technical things because we've been talking about the case on social media. If you, if you Google this, the chances are high you're going to come across a, a photo of a more recent gay porn performer who used the same name, Billy London, same professional name. That's not William Newton. That's not who we're talking about. The number of photographs of William Newton you'll find online are actually very limited, uh, and we have used um, some tasteful headshots in our promotions of this episode and in our effort to bring more attention to the case. But the the young man that most people get when they Google uh, Billy London, at least, is is not the victim of this crime that, that we are focused on now. Um, I was able to do a couple things in the last time, and you've been, we've right. been working you, Christopher, together on this. I, it, Christopher has continued with his investigation. My... Um, sort of entry from episode 37 was kind of limited and there was only so mm-hmm. much we could find out. But as this case was unsolved, Christopher has persisted. He developed that um, email address for people mm-hmm. to write us with tips at, what is it? William, William Newton, Investigate? Newton Investigation at gmail.com. Newton is spelled N-E-W-T-O-N and there are two L's in William. Um, and yeah, it's all one word, no spaces or underscores. And you've or contacted other people and reached mm-hmm. out in the community to try and get more information. So, really, as we honor um, uh, Mr. Newton and uh, you know commemorate, or I, that's a terrible way, remember this tragic anniversary as we come up on the 30th anniversary of his unsolved murder. Um, I, Christopher, has, I, you've actually. I, as I understand it, have some new information to tell us that you've been I, able to. I, to I reach have out new and accounts. What have yeah, you been up have, to? Tell us what you've been up to. Well, it's been a lot of internet research, but I, I want to lead with this because we talked about this the last time we talked about the case. There was an attempt to bring attention to the case in 2005, and a detective, Detective Wendy Barrett, who had become uh, the supervisor of the homicide division at the LAPD. Um, at the LAPD Hollywood station, uh, did did some significant media outreach. Uh, She cited that new technology might be capable of breaking open some new leads in the case. She did say she believed the previous leads had been exhausted. There's conflicting reports about whether or not she was one of the original detectives on the case. Um, I think in one interview that suggestion was made and that she said as original detectives get promoted or move to other divisions, an unsolved case will often languish. That can be hard on the case because somebody new has to pick it up, all that sort of stuff. So around 2005, Billy's father, Richard Harriman, was was public about his support for his son, his grief, his desire to um, have, you know, someone come forward who maybe knew something that they didn't know that they knew. Uh, And he set up an email address around that time called Speak for Bill. Now, by the time I started looking into this and we started talking about it, it was clear that email address no longer worked. Well, that was not a good sign. And unfortunately, based on the investigation that I have been able to do, it seems as if Richard Harriman has passed away, that he passed away in 2011. And that was a sad bit of news because that was somebody who really was trying to keep the torch alive for his son. Yeah. Um, And I'm sorry he didn't get more closure before he moved on. So... What I was also able to do simultaneous to that was I was able to get in touch with the first police detective who saw 
William Newton's remains. Wow. Yeah, and the, he was not actually a homicide detective. He was, this is a man named Detective Mike Burcham. Uh, he was uh, working in the gangs division at the time. He was in plain clothes that morning, eating with some colleagues at a restaurant that's not around anymore, but that used to be an L.A. institution called, it was originally called, I think, Lou's Quickie Grill, and then it became Barb's Quickie Grill. And this was a sort of, this is, yeah, the human interest story that you and I were talking about. This is these two older people who own this restaurant left it to their kind of head waitress for no, they just gave her the restaurant to run. Because they so, were done. It was right around yeah. the corner from uh, the, the the company that first optioned, uh, say, Uncle as a film. Propaganda Films mm-hmm. used to be right around the corner from where yeah. that was actually located, just south of Hollywood Boulevard. Right there, yeah, right in the, in the thick Santa of Santa Monica Boulevard, I, forgive S- me. That's right. Santa Monica Boulevard, been in the thick of Hollywood. So uh, Bertram is, is sitting at a table with his other plainclothes colleague. They've been serving warrants that morning. And in comes a transient who looks completely wigged out. And he says, I found a body. And you guys need to come with me right now. And and one of Bertram's other comments was the guy, the transient was clearly so well-versed in the life of the streets that he knew how to recognize plainclothes cops because he went right up to them and said, are you a cop? So... Um, Bertram is very suspicious. <laughs> he thinks... Um, I love that. Transients um, discover body parts in dumpsters all the time, and mostly what they're discovering are medical that, waste. That's hard to hear. Yeah, it's I, hard to hear. <laughs> not yeah. crazy about that fact. So um, Bertram is thinking, eh, I'm, you know, I'll cross this off the list. We'll, we'll figure out what this is. He goes out to the dumpster. There's the owner of an auto body shop who's working on the same alley who has also been made aware of what's going on by the transient. He brings out a, a ladder or something so that Bertram can go up. And what he said, and this is something I didn't know, uh, is if, um, if he had been in uniform, he never would have jumped into the dumpster. Uh, because it's too dangerous to do that when you have a gun on your belt and all that sort of stuff. You'll get snagged or Ugh. caught on stuff. But because he was in plain clothes, he actually got into the dumpster. Oh, dear God. Poor guy. Jesus. Ugh. And um, he saw... Body or he no, said, that's still horrifying. Yeah. One of the um, bluest eyes he had ever seen oh, was dear. looking up at him. Yeah. And he saw what he described in the moment as a remarkably clean face, a face that had appeared to him to be undamaged, unblemished, youthful, bleach, bleach blonde hair, um, and a very cleanly severed head, you know, that had been cut, you know, kind of above the neck. Um, he, uh, it was later discovered that um, Williams' dismembered feet were also in the dumpster with him. He did not uh, discover them because the minute he realized this was actually a crime scene, that this was actually a human body, he needed to get out of that dumpster so that he didn't destroy any other forensic yeah. evidence. Um, his perception at the time was that this was somebody who had possibly died peacefully and then been dismembered. And placed in the dumpster. And since that conversation, I've uncovered something that possibly suggests another alternative. (laughs) 
I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. So, Christopher, this story that you're telling me of the discover the initial discovery of William's body, it sounds a little familiar. Would it be possible that I might have seen some version of this um, on a television show? Yes. In fact, it turns out that Mike Burcham <laughs> worked as a consultant on a television show called The Closer, uh, which was we were both fans of. And I've actually yes. seen it. I saw this episode before I ever knew about the William Newton murder. And uh, it posited a, a, a theory of the case that was their own, let's just say. Um, and it was informed by Bertram's initial response to this body as, as being somebody who had possibly died of natural causes and then been disposed of in this way. I have since, through a law and enforcement... Was, and, the, and the detectives in the show are alerted while they're eating breakfast, French toast. Um, oh, is that, is that true? I haven't gone back and revisited uh, yeah, the episode. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's pitching her about something, uh, yeah. uh, Brenda, about something. And I think he's trying, he's trying to share the best French toast in all of Los Angeles with her. And he gets called away to go examine it. And so she eats his French toast. Wow. Okay, then. <laughs> I don't know if that really happened or, or not. Fun but, um, fact. No, uh, no. Brenda was not present at the at the yeah. lunch. I'm, I feel relatively certain of that. I, I feel relatively certain of that. And I will say that the the absence of struggle that Bertram noted on the face was not backed up by the preliminary um, murder investigation report because the cause. Now, of what do you mean by that? The absence of struggle. There's well, okay. So typically, when a victim is strangled. There's a fight that ensues, and the fight inevitably will involve the face, that blows of some sort will land on the face. And Bertram's response was, I didn't see any blows on the face to indicate that kind of struggle. That said, the preliminary murder report, which was not, Bertram was not a homicide detective, so he didn't put this report together, um, which I've gotten through a law enforcement source, says the cause of death was, in fact, blunt force trauma to the head and manual strangulation. So he was strangled. Oh, oh dear. Yeah. And, but it had his head bashed in. Had his head bashed in. But it's, you know, I mean, if, if that account of the, the physical state of the face stands, I'm not a forensic scientist. I'm just speculating. It sounds like the blow was possibly to the back of the head. Yeah. And the absence of the struggle must have been strangulation while he was dying. You know, like, it, you know, these are just random, con- yeah, well, not random conclusions. But- because the, one of the other things he talks about is the, the clear blue eyes. And I would think in strangulation, there would be, I can't reticule. Is that right? Um, Hemorrhaging. Mm -hmm. There would be hemorrhaging in the eyes um, themselves, which would be, um, which would indicate that there had been strangulation. So I'm thinking that maybe getting the head bashed in would be more the cause of death than right like maybe, maybe he's so. unconscious and they put a pillow over his face, but in some right. way that, that that it's not a violent strangulation. It is a less violent strangulation or suffocation. Right. Um, the Also, 
you know, so obviously the detectives who show up afterwards discovered his dismembered feet in a different garbage bag in the same dumpster. Bertram didn't discover that. But none um, of the rest of him. None of the rest of him. But I'm going to add that we're aware of, you know, because there are in cases, and this is not based on anything that's been said to me by anybody, but there are cases in which certain details of a murder are held back. They're called guilty knowledge, and, and they're known only to the perpetrator, and they're used to eliminate uh, false confessions. So, I see. I, but I, again, that's just me speculating. The publicly available information says that it was a head and it was a set of feet that were found together but in separate plastic bags in the dumpster. Now, when we talked about this last, I had a lot of theories that were sort of based on this idea that this was not about disposing of a body. This was about disposing of a body in a way that was going to ensure it would be found. And Bertram wasn't really there with me on that theory. And given his law enforcement experience, I'm inclined to kind of, you know, give some credence to his um to his opinion, a lot of bodies, he said, were disposed in this way. And I was saying, why not drive the body up to Angeles Crest Forest and bury it there? That's an old cliche in all the detective novels. And he said, most of the people who live in Los Angeles don't know how to get to Angeles Crest National Forest. That I this is- have no idea where it yeah. is. Yeah, I completely understand that. Plus, they're busy people and maybe had errands to run. So yeah. they just tossed him in the, whatchamacallit, and went on about their lives, believing that it would be anonymous. Plus if the body parts aren't there, how did they identify him? Did they say from the, just from the face or like, I'm not even sure how they would know it was still his feet. He's not identified on the preliminary report that I've seen. So I'm trying to figure out how that determination was made. It was made eventually. I don't know if a missing persons report was filed, but I know that they are estimating that the murder, that he was murdered within two to three days of his disappearance. And we're going to get to a discussion of where he might have last been seen alive. And it was only a few days early. We do know that he was out and socializing with friends of his just a few days earlier at a nightclub in West Hollywood. And the, and the head was severed after he was dead. They are, they're clear on that because that seems something they would know. Do you know that? Or do we not know that? I don't know that for sure, but that is, that has been implied by what I've been able to see so far. You know, okay. that, yeah, that it was that just it curious. Happened. Yeah. So that was quite a conversation. And I I'm think, telling you. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, so after that, subsequent to that, we set up the email address that I referenced earlier. Right. And um, we received a message through it that was quite startling. And um <laughs> I have uh, been given permission by this individual to use their name on the podcast, and their reasoning behind this is they think that by using their name, somebody connected to them who may not remember Billy or have known who Billy was when they were in his presence might hear this and come forward as well. Here's hoping. Yeah. This is somebody who, uh, his name is Ron Wheeler. Uh, At the time of the murder, he had lived in West Hollywood for several years. Uh, He had a friend named Mark Sage, who was a popular porn performer at the time. Mark was one of those rare individuals that performed porn under his actual given name. So there was no, there's no division between his private life and his porn life. Good Uh, for him. They were living on job. Right. They were living on Larrabee Street, um, which is a popular street in West Hollywood that's kind of right up from a bunch of nightclubs. Right. Uh, Right in the heart of Boys Town. 
Right. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to sort of dip in and out of reading Ron's email and I'll let you know when I'm reading and when I'm paraphrasing. But this is Ron okay. saying, back in 1990, I was living in West Hollywood on Larrabee, which is right up the street from Revolver. Most of my friends at the time were all involved in the porn industry, including my best friend, Mark Sage. Um, this is me talking now. Mark, uh, I'm sorry, not Mark, but um, uh, Ron gave me a reference for a friend that we actually had in common who confirmed that much of what Ron said about where he lived and who he lived with at the time and who was in their social group is in fact true. So I was able and to- And how that amazing article. that you had yeah. a friend in common- Right. With the source uh, who contacted you from, where is um, where is he now? Ron Wheeler lives out in the desert. Okay, so yeah. he's in Palm Springs or that vicinity- yeah, absolutely. Um, so his friend Mark comes home to the apartment. This is Ron again. Mark came to my apartment in the afternoon, having just finished a day of shooting, and said that the rest of the cast for the movie they were working on was going to rage for happy hour, and he asked me to join them. So they walked down the street, and they went to rage. And this is me again. Side note, rage was an institution here in West Hollywood, and it just closed a few weeks before this recording probably as a result of the financial damage wrought by the coronavirus pandemic. Absolutely, as a result yeah. of that and and the um, intractability of the landowner and refusal to negotiate uh, terms that might have allowed them to survive the pandemic and the yeah. uh, financial implications of how everything being forced to shut down. So this is Ron again. We walked down the street, we went to Rage, and that was where, for the first time, I met Billy. And that's, of course, Billy Newton, also known as Billy London. We had overlapping friend groups, and I knew who he was, but I'd never met him before. The bar was fairly empty, as it was still daylight out, and when I excused myself to go to the bar to get a drink, there was a man sitting there who I thought was very attractive. I struck up a short conversation with him while I was waiting for my drink. He told me he was from out of town and asked me if things were always this slow. And I said no, things would get busier later at night after the sun went down and that me and my friends would undoubtedly be out and hopefully we would run into him again. So this is me again. Ron was very much into this stranger and thought he was a hot dude. Right. Ron uh, writes again, when I went back to my group, I pointed out the guy at the bar who I thought was hot and told everybody he was from out of town. Several of the guys there agreed that, yes, he was kind of hot. A little bit later, Billy went up to the bar to get a drink and started talking to the same guy. After his drink came, he sat down next to the guy and continued the conversation. We talked for at least 10 or 15 minutes. This is Ron and his social group in the another part of the bar. And then all of a sudden, we saw the two of them get up and walk out the door together. Billy never came back to us to say anything, nor did he wave when he was going out the door. At the time, I remember being a bit jealous of him as I had been the person who had spotted this guy initially and pointed him out to everyone else. A couple days later... As we were getting ready to go out for Halloween, side note, West Hollywood side note here, Halloween is a big deal around these parts. Big deal. It is where Los Angeles celebrates um, Halloween. And prior to that, it was a, a uh, shared ritual here in West Hollywood. It's quite the costume parade and quite the event. So had they did they hear from Billy afterwards? Oh, no, no. Or? Yeah, let me get back into the story. No, they have not heard a word from Billy 
and they're getting ready to go to Halloween. And Mark shows up. This is Ron again. Mark showed up at my house and told me Billy had been found dismembered in a trash can. Oh, it already happened. Oh, right. It's before Halloween, yeah. of course. It has already happened. The remains were found on October 29th. The Halloween, the Halloween Street Festival is always on the actual Halloween. They don't schedule it for the weekend. I think it's always on the day of. So they're getting ready on the 31st. They go out that night and they run into many of the people who had been there at Rage that day. And they were contemplating whether that may have been the man that Billy left Rage with. And this is Ron again. I do remember going to Rage right. that night. And the bartender who had been there serving Billy and this strange man said he was planning on speaking to the sheriff's department about it, but none of us were sure whether or not this was the last time he was seen alive or not. Yeah. I have a law enforcement contact who said Rage was one of the last places Billy was seen alive. I don't know if it is the last place he was seen alive, but it has been documented by law enforcement that he was at Rage. Prior to the window of time, okay. So they were aware that that's that this part of the story that checks out with your source, right? Um, Ron left West. Oh, also, let me jump in here and say, and I I actually did say this to Ron, and I'm sort of talking to my contacts about this. This was not a sheriff's department investigation. The Los Angeles Sheriff's Department has jurisdiction in the city of West Hollywood, but this was an LAPD investigation, right? That said, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to believe there was easy and fluid cooperation between the two agencies. And people I talked to said LAPD would have immediately contacted sheriffs, particularly given that it's a gay area here, and said, do you have any right. missing persons or or uh, murders that, that match this one? So getting back into Ron's story, I left West Hollywood, he says, in May of 1991 to help my father move from California to Utah. Then I decided I was going to move to Maui in November, so I just stayed with him instead of moving back to West Hollywood. Now, Christopher, this is where things get weird and why I always hesitate in telling this story. And Ron basically begins to describe to me that in 1991, while he was watching the television news, he looked up and saw a man who he thought was the strange man Billy Newton left Rage Nightclub with wow. that night. And the That's man was Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh my God. Yes. Jeffrey Dahmer had just been arrested in Milwaukee for a series of heinous and brutal serial murders. And this is Ron again. In June 1991, while watching TV, the news broke about Jeffrey Dahmer and the murders in Milwaukee. And upon seeing the picture of the mugshot, I instantly remembered him as the man we had met at Rage. There happened to so be a phone number. So he was active during this period. Who was active? Yeah, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Dahmer. Dahmer. So this is, this is contemporaneous with Jeffrey Dahmer when he was being a serial killer. And mm-hmm. he has potentially been identified as being in the bar and leaving with Billy immediately before Billy's body was found Mm -hmm. dismembered Uh in a dumpster. Um, This is Ron again. He said there happened to be a phone number shown on the news for people who had any more information about the crimes. I called that number. I left a report of what I had witnessed in West Hollywood. I never heard anything back from anyone. Nobody ever asked me about my report. 
In October 1991, I went to West Hollywood for the last time for Halloween before moving to Hawaii, and I ran into a couple of people, including that bartender from Rage, who had told me he was going to speak to the police. And they said they also felt that the man Billy left with was either Jeffrey Dahmer or a hell of a good lookalike. And they also told me they had reported this to the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department in June at the time the story broke. That's huge. Yeah. The only other person I spoke to this about uh, who seemed to know anything about it was a person I met in Palm Springs years later who claimed to have been a friend of Billy's and said the sheriff's department had planned on interviewing Jeffrey Dahmer about this in person, but that he died prior to those interviews happening. Jeffrey Dahmer was murdered in 1994 in prison. He was gone pretty fast. Yeah, it was not a long there was not a long window there once he was. Um, in jail or in prison or whatever. Wow. So this person also um, told Ron that supposedly this was taken seriously enough that investigators in Milwaukee asked him about it and he denied it. Um, and this is, uh, Ron goes on to explain some of this some more and I'm just going to Jeffrey denied it. Jeffrey denied it. Yeah. Now this is coming, this information is coming from someone that Ron didn't know very well, who he ran into in Palm Springs, who claimed to be a friend of Billy London. It was not somebody that he had spent time with along with Billy. Ron really only met Billy that night for the first time. Yeah, I would need that to come from somebody more substantial than that for me to believe that, 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 that it was a denial that, that, uh, that Dahmer made. Okay, so... We're going to get deeper into all of this. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Okay, so just to sort of bring us up to speed here, we have this email that we received through our address um, from a gentleman named Ron Wheeler, who is probably among some of the last people to see Billy Newton alive before his hideous murder. Ron was watching television in 1991 and saw the arrest of Jeffrey Dahmer and said, that is absolutely the man that I saw Billy Newton leave rage with several nights before his remains turned up in a dumpster in Hollywood. Um. Uh, he moved away from Los Angeles, and, and so he stayed in touch, uh, it sounds like, intermittently with people who had also been there that night. But as we talked about at the beginning right. of the episode, this is a time when a lot of people were dying. And Ron doesn't necessarily say that, but it was a hard time to stay in yeah, touch. Yeah, you don't with. know who's still around. Yeah. It's difficult to say. And it's just been a long time. I right. mean, AIDS or no AIDS, like it's been 30 years. A lot of people are not here that were here 30 years ago. That's, that is a sizable chunk of time. Um, so I'm going to go. Did, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Let me go back into Ron's email and just sort of finish it up because he has more to oh, say okay. about the circumstances oh of this. God. He says, one last thing I should mention is that the man at the bar who we all believe was very likely Jeffrey Dahmer looked very different from the photos you're used to seeing of him. 
Most photos you see of him have him wearing glasses with a little bit more weight on him and his hair is longer. Those were taken during the trial. He looked very different when he was first arrested and we saw those first photos of him. I will attempt to find a photo that best represents that he did and he sent me that photo. I'm sure you understand, Ron says, why I've been hesitant to tell this story very often as people in subsequent years have thought of the idea of Jeffrey Dahmer in West Hollywood as being something we would have all known about. I would love for you to discuss this with the police and ask them about the reports that were made to find out if there was ever any real follow-up done. And I asked him, I asked Ron some follow-up questions. He said the man seemed straight, that he had a deep voice that uh, underspoken was how he described him, that he had a sort of like, you know, uh, soft demeanor to him. Um, he also, as I mentioned earlier, said he was from out of town. And, um, you know, I, I, <laughs> there were aspects, just, there's so yeah. many aspects of this that like my, my initial question is, you know, like, is there like, it's, it's Halloween in West Hollywood. So, Gay people from all over the world, not just all over the country, are bound for West Hollywood. Gay Pride and Halloween is are the tourist holidays, gay right. tourist holidays in West Hollywood. People come from, like, hundreds of thousands of people show up for Halloween here. So it's a pretty big deal, and I... I think that's really a conceivable story that a gay man or somebody who preys on gay men might well show up uh, for Halloween in West Hollywood. Are there any other California connections for um, for Jeffrey from that that or, you know, can we say that he was around at that time or not somewhere else at that time? You know, the thing that I always do. Right. When you're, you're writing. Can you establish that something didn't happen, that it isn't possible so that something else can be possible uh, based on some uh, deep dive I did on some chapters and what's considered, I think, the definitive true crime account of the Jeffrey Dahmer case of the Jeffrey Dahmer murders. I looked at the events documented around the time period of William Newton's murder, and I, not being a law enforcement officer, cannot, yes. based on what I've seen, completely eliminate the possibility that he was in California. Now, that's not to say that somebody way above my pay grade already has been. And I want to add a giant proviso in here that if Wendy Barrett is going to get on TV in 2005 and say, I'm desperate and hungry for leads, she's not going to do that if she believes Jeffrey Dahmer was actually guilty of the crime and died in 94, so there's no prosecuting it. You know, But if I she wasn't part of the original investigation, she may not have been privy to that report. Uh, absolutely. And I have I have seen enough things slip through the cracks. I have heard enough crazy stories about things going wrong yeah. in investigations. I have seen enough jurisdictional, a lack of jurisdictional cooperation in the Golden State Killer case that sort of got us on this topic with Michelle totally. McNamara's research. Okay, so this is what I tried to put together a portrait of what Jeffrey Dahmer was up to around the time of the crime. And in the year right. 1990, he was on a major killing spree in Milwaukee, which... Mm. I'm just going to point this out here. Billy Newton was from Wisconsin. Wow. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying That's that necessarily connects not the two of them. But, but it could have been the beginning of a conversation. Like, yeah. so I'm from out of town. Oh, where are you from? I'm from Wisconsin. Oh, you know what? I'm from Wisconsin originally, too. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's what happened, but that's, yeah, that could have been the beginnings of the conversation between them easily. Right. 
So in um, in Milwaukee th- that we know about, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer is on probation in 1990. He murders someone in June of 1990. He murders someone in July of 1990. He murders someone at the beginning of September in 1990. And then he murders somebody again at the end of September uh, on the 24th. Or the missing persons report for that victim was filed around the 24th. He then goes quiet for a period of about five months. He doesn't murder anyone else that we know about until February 18th. Now, the author of this book, Jeffrey Dahmer, American Nightmare, Donald A. Davis, speculates that the murder he committed on September 24th was not someone who was his usual type. And what that meant for Jeffrey Dahmer was that he didn't preserve your body parts. If you would not fit his sort of ideal victim profile. He didn't save your skull or the other parts of your body. And so Don Davis's theory was that the murder was sort of exhausting and dispiriting for him. So it shut him down for a while. So also around this time, Jeffrey Dahmer is checking. <laughs> it was a disappointing murder. So he I, became, yeah, you've got to like quiet. That seems that's a stretch for me. Uh, maybe, yeah. but that seems like, hmm. That would seem to encourage a psychopath to go find somebody else. Right. Uh, this is where a California connection of a sort starts to come in. And it comes in oh, really? around this time. Yeah. So he's meeting on a regular basis with a parole officer. Um, some of these meetings are in person. Some of them are on the phone. Uh, the... Notes from these sessions were made available to the author, but some of them were heavily redacted. And that's probably because the book was written, I think, maybe around the trial or some of it might have been evidence or whatever. But what he's been able to determine is that um, there was a meeting, an in-person meeting between Jeffrey Dahmer and his parole officer in Milwaukee on November 5th which would have been not very long after the discovery of Billy Newton's remains in Hollywood, October 29th. But plenty of time to get back to Wisconsin from West Hollywood from the 29th or even after Halloween. Uh, Right. And he has a face-to-face interview with his parole officer. He lies like a thief, as Don Davis writes to the probation officer and says he's really adjusting to a life of living alone. And when he's not at work, he has no interest in meeting other people. And of course, he's been meeting people to kill them in his apartment. Um, On December 5th, about a month later, exactly a month later, according to the probation officer, Dahmer mentions that his mother... For the, and it doesn't sound like it's the first time he mentions his mother to her, but it's the first time they have a real conversation about her. And he says, yeah, my mom's out in California. She lives in Fresno, but we haven't spoken or written in about five years. Oh. And the probation officer wow. asks him, well, are you? what's your relationship with your mother like? Are, are you mad at her? She left when you were young and took your brother and didn't bring you. What's, what's that feel like? And he says, meh, I don't really, you know, I don't, I don't. This I don't was really before. This was before or after Billy's murder? That, this is that after he... Billy's murder. This is December okay. 5th. He mentions this. Now, okay. on March 25th, also after Billy's murder, we're going into the following year. Obviously, yeah. He, he drops what the parole officer apparently considered a bombshell. He says, oh, yeah, my mother and I are in touch again. Um, she called me from California. She's living in Fresno. Uh, she's working as a counselor at an AIDS clinic in Fresno. And she's in frequent contact with the gay community out there, and she knows what's going on with the AIDS epidemic. And this has made her sympathetic to our plight. 
And um, she wanted me to know that she accepts me for being a homosexual and that she loves me and that I'm her son no matter what. And this is a mother who walked away in 1978, took his little brother but not him, and she stepped back into his life seemingly out of nowhere. We don't The book itself, and I'm going to do a deeper read on it, didn't seem to offer up a lot of details of what caused this reconnection. Um, this, but, the, it, but the author was clear that his, that was... that. The Jeffrey Dahmer was telling the truth about his mom. That's where she was and that's what she was up to, whether or not she got in touch with him. But I could also see somebody being a fabulous about it. You know, like no, somebody that, who's a I pathological story, liar. Yeah. yeah, her obituary really in the LA Times, knowing. she died in 2000 and her obituary in the LA Times confirmed that she had worked at an AIDS clinic in the Central Valley. So, oh, okay. Well, there you those, are. Yeah. Those details were, were accurate. Wow. But for this to sort of track, I mean, for this to be a connection, first of all, Fresno is a long way away from Los Angeles. It's about a sure. six, seven hour drive, maybe around that. I don't know. I, I, now that I say that, it doesn't feel like a long way. Um, the, Particularly uh, if you drove here from Wisconsin. And I'm assuming that he would have to have driven because this is a man on parole. I just I don't think. And this working is working at a chocolate factory. Right. He's a man of very limited financial resources in general, right? Like he works overnight shifts at a chocolate factory. He lives in a terrible neighborhood, which is something that comes up with his parole well, officer all the time. And beyond that, like it also like a, booking a flight or a train or whatever would create a record that you had left the state, which yeah, which parole is not keen on. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, you would want to drive so that it would not be clear that you had gone away. Right. If you, in fact, were going away. In the longer story of Jeffrey Dahmer, which sort of takes us a little far away from Billy or further away than I want to go from Billy, this event is seen as triggering the killing spree that brought him down. That 1991, he went hell for leather after this call with his mother. And, and people, I think there's some speculation that being loved by his mother actually freaked him out, you know, that it, that it was almost like it, it it brought up some sort of shame or mania. I don't know. But it was he was arrested not too far after this. And Ron Wheeler talks about in 1991 seeing the arrest unfold on the news. But the killing spree that he went on in 91 was more excessive than the one he went on in 1990. So that's kind of a summary of the Jeffrey Dahmer piece that I've been able to put together around this. There is wow. There is also a reference to every law enforcement agency at the time that had any kind of homicide of a gay victim or any missing gay person's case got in touch with the Dahmer team and wanted, you know, some, you know, whatever. Um, sometimes that kind of attention can create a pathological liar like Henry Lee Lucas. That's a popular documentary on Netflix now right. where he just confesses to everything. But it's not inconceivable in that environment that the account Ron Wheeler got from the guy in Palm Springs he ran into later where it's like, yeah, they asked Dahmer about it and he denied it. That could have happened in the course of events here as they're laid out. But what I didn't find in this book, and I'll keep digging, was anything that definitively proved Jeffrey Dahmer could not have conceivably traveled anywhere by car for several days' time at the time of Billy Newton's murder. Well, but the other thing that really strikes me, like one of the things that have, has always seemed unbelievably weird to me about this particular um, case mm -hmm. is... That they found that they found that 
the head and the feet, but not the body. Like if you're trying to conceal the identity of the person that you've murdered, you cut off the head and the hands and then mm -hmm. you can throw the body in the dumpster and figuring out who it is is going to be much harder. But the body has never been that we know of recovered. Mm -hmm. And this is the first explanation for why he would, why the body would be missing and mm -hmm. not, and that the head and feet would be in the dumpster. Well, you know, like this man was a cannibal, like, right. the, like that part of the body is the part that like maybe packed it in ice and put it in the trunk. You know what I mean? Like, like, I don't know that that wasn't what he was harvesting and that, the, that the, the, the head and the feet were less important to him. As you said, not really his type, maybe, um, well, that right, I need to get some more information on that, because when I looked for Jeffrey Dahmer's type, I went down a kind of a, an Internet rabbit hole. And I, I want to dig deeper into Davis's book, because there's there's some thinking out there that that Dahmer killed predominantly black gay men because he lived in a predominantly black neighborhood and frequented bars that had a high black clientele. But sure. I don't know if that's true or not. The thing that I will say in response to that is that very often the head and the feet were what he would preserve out of the victims if they were his ideal type. But that said, if it wasn't, he would dispose of them. So I'm, yeah. I, that's that's the thing that leaped out to me when you first brought up the Dahmer connection was it's the first explanation for where's the body because right. it just seems to me if you're just going to dispose of somebody randomly in a dumpster why bother to cut their head off and their feet right why just throw the whole right. body in the dumpster why cut off the head and the feet and and conceal the body the part that would be the hardest to identify on its own right um i, I just this is the first time I've heard any explanation that that fits with i don't know that that makes the case for Dahmer but it certainly is it gives me pause. I mean, it really did. As you were describing that to me, it really was like, oh, that's the first explanation. Because that is the part of this crime that has always seemed the strangest to me. Mm -hmm. I, I, I know it's a weird, horrible, perverse thing to do for whatever, but to dispose of the head and the feet and not the body is yeah. just weird, unless you're some weird cannibal person. Because somebody um, said... I was talking to somebody about it and they're like, well, the torso was probably just in another dumpster. And it's like, why, why would you go to the, why would you increase your exposure right. across dumpsters by putting the head in one? Why if are you just going to throw the head in a dumpster? Just throw the whole body in there. It just doesn't make any yeah. difference because your ID is, is there. And I, maybe they'd hope that it wouldn't be found. And yes, that might well be the case, but I just find that, really strange well you and, know and this offers an explanation for it i I, yeah. I don't know that it is the explanation but it's the first one i've heard or yeah the first positive the first time i've heard a suggestion that that might plausibly explain it yeah i want to thank ron wheeler for contacting us and for letting us use yeah, no name. kidding I, I think wow. this is really this is the type of thing that I was hoping for when we started talking about this, that somebody who maybe knew something that who didn't know what they knew. I think Ron knows what he knows, and, and I think he knows the value of it and has been looking. And for I hope that if anybody hears this who right. is also familiar with Ron and Ron's story will also contact us. What's the email address, Christopher? It's William, William Newton and Newton investigation. Newton. William has two L's in it. Newton is N-E-W-T-O-N. 
at gmail.com. And of course, we'll post it uh, frequently on. I mean, we're not going to stop talking about this just because the grim anniversary no. is passing on October 29th. We're going to no, keep No, because the point to, is to yeah. keep it alive and to I, keep the inquiry going. Right. And I think that um, it is about. You know, when Wendy Barrett said new technology when she in 2005, when she was trying to get attention to the face, like social media is new technology, you know, I mean, and most of what we saw Michelle McNamara do on the Golden State Killer case was use the Internet in new and inventive ways and connect with people right. and draw comparisons between things. I, you know, I think we should we should say here that we, we are not asserting that Jeffrey Dahmer murdered Billy Newton. We are simply saying, I mean, we're offering up credible accounts that are being brought to us as a result of increasing the profile of this murder on social media, which is really what yes. our, you know, that was the objective in doing this to begin with. So, yeah, I don't know that we will ever be the, the salt, but if we can get people thinking about it and talking about it and suggesting possibilities about it again, like if it's Dahmer, I don't know how they would ever determine that at this point, but it does suggest a possible line of inquiry that's like, well, there's a, there's that I a, hadn't ever heard before. There's a kind of, when I was looking into Dahmer's mother the, before we recorded this, there was a grim sort of coda on her story. She, As I said, she died of breast cancer in 2000. She did also right. try to kill herself in 1994, which was very sad. She tried to, they found her with, she had tried to use the oven. Um, she God. wanted um, Jeffrey's yeah. brain preserved for medical research. And it was a very controversial thing at the time. And she tried through the courts to ensure that would be the case. And she lost. But what that also means is that a lot of Jeffrey Dahmer's DNA was probably lost. I don't know if that's on file or that's been retained. I don't know how advanced DNA science was at the time of his arrest. I mean, I would hope that it's on file. I don't, I don't know what DNA evidence exists, if any, in the Billy Newton murder that can be used. But that is something that we saw crack open the Golden State Killer case after I'm years sorry. and years. Who on earth would oppose a mother's wish for her son's brain to be preserved for medical science? Like, who had standing to oppose her? That sounds like a topic the for The state of episode. Wisconsin? Like, I don't see why yeah. it would be any of their fucking business if it's her son. Right. Like, was it other family members? Like, I, that's really, that's baffling to me. Why would anybody oppose a mother's request mm -hmm. of that sort? Mm -hmm. Where her own son is, I just that's that's strange. I'll look into yeah, anyway. It. I'll look into yeah. it. I mean, I think what I want to emphasize is this is an ongoing conversation about this case, and it will continue. Right. And we will bring up things, and they will be disproven. And someone may get in touch with us and say, "I've got proof." And we will. We're. I think we're determined to give a platform to anything that's credible and potentially helpful to advancing, you know, the cause of this investigation. Because that's the point. Yeah. We're not yeah. going to solve this, but if we could point people or keep people aware, mm -hmm. then, then we will have accomplished something, I think. Absolutely. Remarkable in and around. Yeah, wow. Good for you, Christopher. My goodness, what amazing uh, additions to this story. I, I think that's a fascinating collection. This may be the best episode of the show we've ever done. Oh. Well, you know, I, I, I hope it helps the case. That's really what I hope it does, you know. And, um, you know, I, I thank you for being willing to let me indulge this obsession on our podcast and being absolutely. Going along. Yeah, on the ride. So yeah. if you are on October 29th or thereabouts thereafter, um, 
please spare a thought, a prayer for the memory of William Arnold Newton, who lost his life in a horrific homicide here in Los Angeles uh, almost 30 years ago as of this recording. And um, we will certainly be thinking about him here at the TDPS Network and hoping that eventually and hopefully soon his killers will be brought to justice. Um, In the meantime, we are planning to talk about some lighter subjects in the upcoming yes episodes. next episode we promise will be a lighter um take on 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 uh, just about everything like we yeah. definitely need after the last couple of episodes we've had um, a dark run had a definitely dark yes, run um definitely a dark period here but we're going to lighten up the uh the course next next time absolutely we we know offhand if you want to watch ahead if you're one of those party people who likes to do advance work we're not sure exactly how the schedule is going to suss out yet but we know we're going to be talking about a documentary that's on hbo max right now <laughs> called class action class park action park i uh-huh. just absolutely it is yes that is definitely among other things we will be discussing that there's a new sherlock holmes coming on uh, Netflix that I and, promised and myself. Which best a, friend of yours immediately called you when he saw the trailer for it? Not only a new Sherlock Holmes, which is already squarely in your ballywick, but with your boyfriend, Henry Cavill. In absolutely, the with Henry Cavill playing Sherlock Holmes. Cavill, but the sorry. Focus, but the focus is on um, his sister, Enola, being played by another of my all-time favorites, um, Millie Bobby Brown, is going to play Sherlock Holmes' sister. So I'm looking forward to that and we'll have, I'm sure, plenty to say about that next time. Um, and you loved Millie Bobby Brown before she was popular. You were back oh with God. her when she I, was on Intruders, that uh, Intruders BBC America show. Yeah, Just amazing. I saw her and went, that is going to be a really big star. I don't know who that kid is, but my God, what a performance. Absolutely. Yeah. So until next week, I'm. I always say that, but I'm going to be Christopher Rice as long as I live. So like I. Yeah, they you, do that on the news every day uh, on uh, NBC in in Los Angeles. They say, um, uh, "We'll be back at six thirty, but until then, enjoy your evening." And it's like, and then after that, fuck you. Like what the right. hell? But yeah, it is. It is a strange conversational device that I think we all use. Until yeah. next time. Until next time, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And we still will be the next time. Thanks for listening. This is TDPS.